You're listening to The Perth Property Show, Australia's only weekly property podcast by West Australian experts for West Australian listeners. Catch your latest episode every Monday at 7am. Hello and welcome to another week of The Perth Property Show. My name is Trent Fleskins, your host as always. We have got Sam Carello back in the room today. We are talking about non-standard employment. More and more on our side of the equation at Strategic in that development space, we have a lot of clients coming with different backgrounds, whether it's FIFO workers, casual workers that have been working forever, but they're just on casual contracts, self-employed professionals especially, also self-employed tradies. And that's all on top of your normal vanilla PAYG clients. And it's interesting, we note how differently some banks will treat these types of clients and specifically one type of employment to another. Some might be really good for a self-employed and some really quite poor for casual, for example. And it can catch you out as a broker and it has caught us out, to be honest, sometimes as a broker, just learning about how policies, because they're always changing. They're always business decisions that they're not the government. The banks are making business decisions about the types of clients and the types of risk profiles they want to take on. So, we thought we'd get Sam in the room. Sam, thanks for coming in again. No worries. Thanks for having me. We want to talk just about from your experience, uh, which would be obviously much more broad than most people in Perth, where the right banks to go to would be in terms of policy, maybe not rate talking today, just about policy for these different types of non-standard employment and why. Yeah, like you said, all the banks sort of have their niches and as I've probably mentioned before, as a broker, how we work, we go, right, where are we going to qualify and actually get approved? Then we look at a product that's suitable and then finally you look at rates. So, rates always last. I mean, obviously, you want to look after the client, but there's no point offering them a sharp rate if they're going to be yeah, told no. Waste three weeks of their life, yeah. miss out on the house exactly. just for a rate. Yeah. yeah. So, where do you want to start? I guess Perth has a pretty big FIFO client base. Yeah. And with that, recently, what I'm seeing is a fair bit of contract work coming through. It seems like the miners, to save their own butts a little bit, they want the, the labor, but they don't want to lock people into... PAYG employment or longer term employment. They're just happy rolling people through 12-month continual rolling contracts. Are you seeing a bit, a bit of that? Yeah, definitely. I mean, it, it's the easiest way to manage your workforce, you know. If things yeah. change, contractors, you can flick the next day. Yeah. So, and with that, I guess there is a little bit of risk and, and the banks, well, some banks don't like the look of contract workers. Do they get it though? Do the West, West especially the West Australian assessors, do they get it? Yes, some banks, like I said, some banks are definitely better. So typically in this space, Bank West and CBA uh, are pretty good. You know, as long as you've sort of got three months left on your contract, they're happy just to treat you as a you know full-time employed. Just a PAYG. Yeah. Yeah, we see the same. Yeah. Yep. So they're they're typically quite good at it. Other banks want to see at least six months left on contract. Some want twelve months. Really hard important. Twelve-month contract. That's it. <laughs> so uh, very hard. So in terms of that, you know, when you're sitting down with your broker and having a chat, just make sure you've got your contract in front of you. Yeah, that's the best way to do it. They can do a bit of work and, and get some options. Um, a couple of pay slips to show consistency, and then yeah, we get the three months bank statements as well. That'd come up too if you're working, I guess, a wage contract where you've got lots of hourly rates and bonuses. You know, that's non-standard, really, isn't it? Correct. Yeah, non-standard income. How the banks typically assess it, unless you're a you know, a police officer or a nurse. Uh, some some banks will take, I guess, overtime or allowances at a hundred percent of their value. Most banks typically go right. What's the base base wage and base hours, and then anything earned above that, uh, we take at eighty percent. So, for example, say we've got a worker on fifty thousand dollars a year base, and then they earn about ten thousand dollars in allowances. They would be assessed at about fifty-eight thousand. I also see if it's specifically written down to be a food or a rent or a motor vehicle allowance, 
they want to see how that matches up with expenses or other costs. Sometimes they're not actually going to allow you to use that allowance. Yeah, the rent in that one's the big one. So rent, obviously, if we're doing a home loan application, we're going to be moving into the property. So you can't include any any rent allowances. But in terms of vehicle, again, some people might get, say, $15,000 a year for a vehicle. Most banks will cap at about $5,000. So we'd be able to use five of that 15. When we're talking about those people who have a bit of a variable income every year because of these factors, we also find a lot of banks will ask us to present the last couple of notice of assessments to just get that history to support that amount if we need that amount to be supporting it. I guess what we're doing there is, you know, you're building the case. So you're saying, cool, so this year we're on... 150,000. Last year we earned 150. The year before we earned 150. So it's a consistent income. So you may be on rolling one year contracts, but you've got the story there to make the, the bank comfortable. So you say, yep, if this contract was to end tomorrow, we're confident that the client would be able to go get a job at, say, you know, they've gone from, I don't know, BHP to, you know, they'll get a job at Chevron on the same sort of wage. So that, they just want to see that experience and that continuity to make sure that, you know, well, if we're, we're lending this person money on a contract basis, they are going to be able to make their repayments, not just this year, but moving forward. Bonuses and commissions. This one can catch people out, I think. It's yep. caught me out a couple of times as a broker where we've looked at it and gone, yep, you're, going, you're getting this every year. And then you go to a bank and then they say, well, we're shading that down to a certain percentage. And you say, well, they're making the same amount every year. How can you shade this off? Yeah. So I guess that's variable income is what the banks like to call it. So typically with bonuses, they want to see two years history and then they'll take 80% of the two years. Well, if there's greater than a 20% variance, they're going to take the lower. In terms of commission, it depends what sort of commission role you're in. Say a, a real estate agent had a couple of good wins with CBR recently where they'll just take the last 12 months. So they'll look at last 12 months, salary credits to the client, and they'll work off that. Obviously, scale it to 80% still, but they'll look at last 12 months as most of the other banks want to see two years worth. And they'll average it? Yeah, and then they'll average, yep. And That's then, tough. Yeah, correct. I mean, especially if you're new to industry, your, your first year might be... Three quarters of a year. Correct, yeah. And it might be, you know, you're starting to build your client base. Sales probably aren't as strong. So, you might do 100 in the first year and 200 in the second. Well, they're going to say, well, hang on a sec. That's a pretty big variance. Let's get a story around it. The other one that has a a bit of a niche for for real estate agents is if you pay for your own expenses and and things like that. So, say you've got a PA, uh, Bankwest will actually assess you as self-employed, which works really well. That's a good thing. Yeah. How? So, they'll take 100% of the income rather than scaling it to 80 because obviously you're paying for your expenses. So, your your PA's wage and, and things like that are coming out of your income. Good segue, Sam. I like how you're getting the hang of this. <laughs> Let's talk about self-employed. Yes. Let's talk about the things that a lot of people get caught out in when they come to me, especially expectations around, well, this year I made 150. I should get a loan, right? Yeah, so self-employed. A few boxes that need to be ticked in self-employed space. Correct. Yeah, I always, um, I love, we've got a lot of self-employed clients. I, I enjoy dealing with them. You know, on the phone, they might say, oh, yep, I've earned my 150 and then you get your tax return and the accountant's done a pretty good job of expensing away everything to show about, you know, so you don't pay any tax. Show about yeah, 30K. suddenly you're at 90. Yeah. So, in, in terms of self-employed, typically, uh, most mainstream lenders want to see two years worth of your ABN or ACN and two years worth of trading. So, that gives them, I guess, the comfort that, all right, so two years, we can see what the trend is. In saying that, we do have lenders who will look to do one year, so ANZ and, and CBA. Again, you've probably seen a theme in this conversation where it's the majors who have the appetite to take on risk. 
A little bit more risk, yeah. yeah. For the right client? Correct, for the right client. So they're happy to look at one year. Otherwise, you've got some of our, what we call our alternate lenders. So the likes of your Latrobe and your Bluestone. Pepper. Pepper, yep. Guys like that who can go as low as six months. Like you can start a business six months later, two basses, they can give you a loan. Yep. You're obviously going to pay a premium for that because they don't have all the information, but it's a solution. And then Yeah, it's a, it's a short-term solution to get you to that two years. Hopefully, you've made as much or more over that two-year period and then you can flick over to the cheaper rate of the big four, right? Correct, yeah, that's it. So, with those guys, it's, as we always say, it's solution-based lending. So, it gets you what you need now. Loans are for 30 years in terms of the term, but I, I don't know the last client I had who stayed with the same bank for 30 years. I'd, like to, I'd actually like to see someone who has done that, who yeah. has actually paid their loan off in 30 years not 20 not 15 they get stuck with the same loan the same bank for 30 years just consistent i highly doubt they raise the rates on the the back book and things like that if you're not reviewing your loan every couple years back to self-employed talk to me about westpac's fast track system there that can help people in what situation self-employed uh westpac they've got a bit of a niche product so they're happy just to work off uh, two notice of assessments if it's purely self-employed income. So you can't have any rental income on there. You can't have any PAYG. So it depends how you set up, how you get paid. If it's, you know, some clients. Well, it's all built into that notice assessment, isn't it? Uh, yes, but you can't have that showing on there. So if you've got rental income on there or you've got, say you run a company and then that company pays you a PAYG wage. So your director of the company pays you a PAYG wage. They won't take that notice of assessment shortcut. You'll have to provide full financials. But say you're just working off an ABN, so you're a sole trader. Give me two notice of assessments and they will That's approve it. it off that. Yeah. No bank statements, no tax returns, no ATO portals. Uh, no, definitely no tax returns on that fast track. Uh, bank statements, Westpac no longer require them unless it's for a, a credit card or a, a personal loan. Isn't that interesting? They've come back. So a lot of the banks at the start of the year will need in three months of absolutely everything. And some banks still do, but quite a few of the banks have come back and I guess they've put the trust back into the client to say, well, let's do a living expenses declaration. We'll, we'll segregate it into your 13 topics and we'll go off what's declared on there. So they're, they're trusting people again. I'm not getting calls saying your client's buying a $4 coffee every day from this coffee shop in Subi. Mm. Have you allocated that in? Uh... Yeah, that's that's the point of frustration that hopefully we're moving back away from again. To me, it just sounds like they need the business and they're ho- happy to just open the floodgates a slight bit more than they were a year ago now that the microscope isn't on them as much. I'd, I'd say so. And you saw the changes with the serviceability rate came through at the turn of the financial year. And that's increased borrowing by about 20%. Yeah. So they are starting to relax a little bit. Well, um, every month, I'm sure you get the same emails, Sam, as the banks keep dropping their rates. We keep also talking about the assessment rates coming down as well. Yeah, so they've got that. We're, we're pretty much seeing that the floor rate for five assessment. and a half now. Yeah. yeah, with quite a few of the lenders. Yeah, I mean, it's good for a consumer wanting to borrow. I guess they've taken the shackles off a little bit. Uh, hopefully get some of this money out in the economy. I think so. Uh, what other types of income? Casual. Casual. Tell us about casual. There are definitely some banks, and we're probably getting a theme here, but there are definitely some <laughs> banks that are more open to casual and some that are just downright no thanks. Correct. Yeah, I guess casual income. Um, so casual PAYG, you're not guaranteed a wage. So you could work 30 hours one week, the next week you could be told we don't need you. following week you could work another 30 hours. Casual income, typically banks want to see six months worth of history. We do have banks that will look at three months. So they'll take uh, the last three months income and then we'd annualize that out over a year. Which ones are they, Sam? Uh, again, Commonwealth uh, <laughs> are good at the, at the yep. casual income. So yeah, you're seeing a theme. Commonwealth are, are pretty 
relaxed, I guess, on the employment side with certain things. And I guess that's probably down to the size of their book. They can mitigate the risk by having you know the rest of the clients, I guess. The scary thing about that is people could possibly get sacked next week. Well, that's it. <laughs> I was having this discussion uh, yesterday with a client who was a self-employed client. And he was saying, you know, like we pay our rent, pay our bills, can we get a loan? And then you look at his tax returns, like we said, and didn't quite show what was what he thought they would show. In terms of PAYG, I mean, that's that's vanilla for the banks. That's what they want, PAYG, permanent or full-time. But in saying that, you can rock up tomorrow and you could be out of a job. But that is the most desirable sort of income that the banks want to see. So yeah. if you've got PAYG, we've got banks who would take one day, so pretty much start your job. That's NAB, right? Uh, NAB, you don't even have to have, have started. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so NAB, if you've signed a contract to say you're going to start within 60 days, they will lend you money. That's nuts. It's crazy. Yeah. I mean, yeah. but that's And that's stuck through the Royal Banking Commission. They haven't changed that. That is the interesting point of that. It's in policy. So sometimes the assessors can be a little bit difficult about it. That's where you get your BDM involved. And yeah. she uh, yeah, she sorts it out because it is in policy that if you're starting a full-time or part-time permanent role within 60 days, they'll use that income. Otherwise, one day or, you know, if you've got history in the role, so say you've been an accountant at one firm for 12 months or two years and then you're starting at a new accounting firm the next day, that's history in the role, similar sort of income level, the banks would probably... Most banks are okay with that these days. Correct, yeah. They get that people move more than once every 10 years. Well, gone are the days, get a job when you're 19 years old and you stay in that until you're you're 65. I mean, I've had a few recently where I think one, the longest I've seen, 31 years. Yeah. Teacher, but uh, that's the longest. But typically, when you fill in the the fact fine, yeah, there's two or three jobs on there. I think that's normal. Yeah. I think the banks get it. Yeah. Yeah, as long as we're still employed and we're not having gaps. Correct, That's yeah. where questions are asked. Yeah, yeah. Anything greater than 28 days in between jobs, yep. they don't like the look of, but um, yeah. Any more types of employment? Have we wrapped that up? One thing I will note is that, like we've discussed today, all lenders have different policies. So again, a broker is probably a good port of call as they have access to multiple banks. Say you were to walk into an ANZ branch and you're on that one-day employment and you don't have the history, well, they're not going to say, I'll oh, go next door to CBA. The answer is just going to be no. You can't get a loan full stop. Well, they're going to say no or you come back in three months. So that's where having someone do the research for you who knows the credit policy definitely comes in handy. It seems to me like from any walk of employment life you come from, there's probably a solution. It's just about identifying it. Correct. That's exactly right. And pricing it. That's right. I mean, consumers, you can log online and check rates out. But like I've said many times, rate is probably the last thing you should consider. You've got to see where you're going to get approved and then get the right product in place prior to then looking at rate. Sam, thanks for coming in, mate. No worries. Thanks for having me, Trent. Speak soon. Okay, it's suburb spotlight time. Now, we are talking about Canning Vale, Perth's biggest suburb in terms of population numbers and obviously getting a lot of transactions through there as a product of that. Our number one agent for Canning Vale is Janie Padgels from the agency. Janie, thank you very much for coming in and talking about Perth's biggest suburb. Thanks, Trent. Thanks for having me in. When we talk about Canning Vale, what is the Canning Vale lifestyle? For me, it's that south of the river family lifestyle, very median house price, stereotypical, two parents, two kids, uh, going to a good solid school with sport on the weekend and everything that it means to be Australian. That's what I think of when I think of Canning Vale. Tell me about your perspective of it. Oh, no, you're pretty spot on there, I would say, Trent. 
Canning Vale is very family friendly and oriented that way with our parklands and our schools that are in the top 90 percentile. So it brings in a lot of families. Um, I think there's 20 percent of our people are between four and seven. There you go. So that Young just shows families. you. Yep. Yeah, yeah. So it's just a great lifestyle. You, you go walking through the parks. The kids are always in the park. They're out on their bikes. It's just a beautiful suburb to be in. And the developers really did it right. The sought-after suburb, uh, estates within the suburb, they did the parklands beautifully and it just is stunning when you're walking through. When I think about master plan suburbs like Allenbrook, Averley, Baldivis, how they've really got a good foundation for future family growth, I think back to Canningvale as the grandfather of that, of as really being the first master plan suburb over a number of estates where the state government, the planning controls came in and said, look, it can't just be avenues and streets and a park here and there. It really has to be a family-friendly lifestyle for longevity. So I really think that Canningvale has been that perfect example for all the rest of these family estates that one day will be integrated into Perth's pure metro area Mm. uh, as a great example of what will continue to be a great family lifestyle. Give me some history. We love talking about history on our suburbs and I reckon this suburb, because it's relatively new as a suburb, has some cool things to be said about it. Tell me the foundation of this place. Who used to live there? So back way back it was known as East Jandicott because mm, it was exciting. all family uh, family owned farming areas quite large areas not a good name for a new suburb no. is it no so, so 19, had to change it. 1925 they changed the name to Canningvale and it was named after one of the farms that was in the area one of the larger farms apparently so that was called Canningvale Farm and it was owned by William Nicholson hence Nicholson Road Big Road so, yeah, that's pretty much how it came to be. And in, then it remained farming land up until the late 70s. And then the early 90s, the developers moved in and did a wonderful job. Wow. Tell us about those schools. Tell us about the primary schools, the high schools, uh, where people are normally sending their kids. Is it generally within Canning Vale or are there other options, private schools that some of the families are going to? I think it's interesting because a lot of the first home buyers actually grew up in Canning Vale in one of the estates. So they're coming back to live in Canning Vale because it is such a great suburb. Caledonia Primary School is very sought after. I think it's in 100% um, in the Better Schools website. And so you find a lot of young families gravitating towards the homes in that area. Ranford Primary School is also 90th percentile and they got best academic and community in 2015. So our schools are right up there. Where are we going to high school then? High school, we've got Canningvale College, but we've also got a great bus infrastructure to get you to the private schools. So we've got Kerry College, we've got Thornley Christian College, we've got Lumen Christi College buses that come through there. So we're really well equipped to cater for wherever anyone wants to send their children. So with a suburb as big as Canningvale, there are obviously a number of estates. Do we know generally, is there a perspective as to which are the premium estates in Canningvale? Where, where do you aspire to be in Canningvale if you've got the money? Most definitely there is. So there's five main estates. So Livingston, Waratah and Ranford, and they come under the Canning City Council. 
Um, most of those homes are 20, are 30. There's a couple of 2,000 square metre lots, which I'm happy to say I own one of those. Well, I'll tell you what, that's a good future uh, hold, isn't it? Oh, uh, it's absolutely beautiful, right on the park there in Ranford Estate. And we've also got Brooklyn Greens, which is probably one of the newer of the sought-after estates. But the, I guess the pinnacle of Canning Vale is to be in Livingston Park, all the two-storey homes, absolutely stunning what sort of streets are we talking here? What are the main thoroughfare streets around there? So you're looking at Pebblebush and Cary Avenue, Lamandra Way, uh, Samphire Road, all those sort of there. And it's quite two way in and two ways out and very exclusive area there. If I'm in Canyonville, am I excited about the future Metronet train station accessibility coming through or is it not really a part of my lifestyle? Oh, we're most definitely pushing that. I mean, traffic can be a bit of a hazard down... Nicholson. ...and Ranford Road into, into South Street. So the introduction of these two railways will be absolutely brilliant for our infrastructure. And if they do it right, it should uh, hopefully improve the value of the properties that run along that rail. So mm. it's very exciting. I think it, what it's going to do is just give more and more people a reason to live in Canyonville if their lifestyle might be closely connected to F- Fremantle or the city or further out in the Eastern Hills. A lot of us, obviously, we try and live as close as we can to work so that we save an hour of our day not being in traffic. But uh, I think second you start getting a rail line through a suburb that's never had one before, you just get so many more people opening up their idea to, look, I've always loved that family lifestyle, but I work in the city, probably want to be you know, living in Carlisle. Now that there's a train station here, you know, maybe we can we can actually have that lifestyle in Canyonville we've been wanting to have for years. Yeah, most most definitely. And getting back to the traffic again, I mean, some mornings peak hour coming from Sanctuary Waters Estate, which is another beautiful estate, and that's where a lot of people want to be. But the traffic sometimes puts them off there. But with the traffic problem being alleviated, because hopefully people will then commute by train, anywhere in Canyonville will be a great place to live. Let's talk about the current buyer-seller dynamics in Canyon Vale. It's been an interesting spring in Perth because it's one where we finally started to have some actual empirical data saying, look, we've seen a positive gain on median prices in November against October. Transactions are up 30% year on year. We've got anecdotal evidence from other agents saying, look, houses are starting to fly out the door. We've got too many people at, list- at the listings and not enough listings. What's the anecdote, what's the evidence in Canningvale looking like right now on both transactions? How quickly are you selling things? How many are you selling right now compared to maybe a year ago? But also values, if you are or you're not currently seeing any growth. So what I found this financial year has been that the properties are actually selling a lot quicker. But I, I attribute that to more of the fact that we have a low stock level at the moment. I've sold 21 in my first quarter of this year, which I've never done before. So, What were you selling in your first quarter of this calendar year? I generally were, were selling three or four a month. Yeah, so, so you're pretty much double. Yeah, yeah. so I, I mean, yeah, I have. And since then, I've sold probably another six. So I think the low stock levels at the moment are pushing our properties along and we're managing to keep those stock levels at that current do you think people are holding back because they're seeing a light at the end of the tunnel thinking, I don't need to sell now? So you're not having that dynamic of sellers who a couple of years ago needed to sell. So the people that are selling 
uh, there's, min- there's not that many of them left and the, the rest of them are sort of holding off waiting for another year from now but the d- demand is still as it was. Yes, I agree with that. A lot of sellers are holding their properties thinking that the market's going to go up. Obviously, we don't know when the market will turn. We're hoping it will in the next three to five years but at this stage, Canningvale in particular has still posted a 2.7 loss year to, year to date. Mm. So whilst we're seeing the properties moving because of the low stock levels, we're not seeing prices increase. When I think of Canningvale, I think of it as being the most premium suburb in Perth's second ring, if we can call it that, in terms of housing and demographics, and it will be the first one. Once we see Canningvale move, I think that will line up with a general consensus that Perth's on the way up properly and not just you know, green shoots. So when Canningvale moves, that real median family with median price, median incomes, when they go, the general consensus will be that, yeah, Perth's on the way up, Perth's doing well, and we're a strong suburb. I'm, look, I'm nervous for you if you've already done 27 sales since July 1 this year in a market that's still on values-wise, hasn't gone anywhere. I'm nervous for you when the market in, in Canningvale is actually going to be moving upwards. You might have to hire a couple more assistants. Oh, I've tried that. (laughs) I find it very hard to let someone else take control of my properties. Yeah, well, that's that's obviously a a very good level of confidence, I guess, that sellers have in you to understand that when they're looking. And this is something for real estate agents. You hear that a lot where you see the branding on a real estate agent that, you know, they're the ones to trust. They sign you up and then you don't see them again because it's their assistant at the home open and you might see him on this eventual sale. But I think it really is an important thing that especially for a number one agent in a suburb, that they are still the face. They are still the one doing hands on the hands-on work, yeah. getting their hands dirty uh, because you're the one making that sale at the end of the day. That's true. Very true. That's trust. I have a great team behind me as well. So, Well, you, it, I think when you're doing these sorts of numbers, you need to have a team helping you, but mm. you still need to be essentially making the calls, getting things done, bringing the buyers to the table. Yes, true. Talking about those buyers, do you feel like there are more buyers than there were a year ago or is it just purely there are less sellers? Um, I think the amount of buyers in the current market is pretty much the same as what it was this time last year. I think a lot more sellers are sitting on their hands and waiting to see what the next couple of years brings. A lot of my appraisals I go out and do, they say, well, we're not really going to sell if we're not happy with the price. And then therefore you just educate them, keep in touch, etc. Eventually they'll come. But at this stage, a lot of them are sitting on their hands. When we talk about price points, I guess Canyon Vale wouldn't have too many. It's not like there are old style units and flats, many apartments around in this suburb. It really is a family home suburb, right? Can we go through how cheap it can be to get into Canyon Vale and how expensive you've seen it and a couple of price points in between? Yeah, so we have entry-level properties, which are our units, usually in a group of 7 to 11. In the current market, they are at 350 to, say, 410, 420. How old are are these properties? Well, these would be newer properties in Canning Vale, so 2009, 2008, 2005 units. Um, And so, of course, they would be ideal first-home buyer properties to get into Canning Vale. The drop that we've seen over the past, well, since 2014, has been around about 
probably 10 to 24% across the different price points. So you can get a four by two, for example, for high 400s, whereas that was usually reserved for the units and things like that. A family home with a pool now, you can get for low 500s. High 500s will get you a bigger block. How big is a bigger block? 600s? Probably some of the 700 square metre lots. Okay. And then you go into 600s now, which are the bigger homes. So more floor area, 600 square metre block, and they're 6 to 650 some with a pool, but mainly just a bigger home. Are the bigger homes the older homes in the suburb? The bigger blocks are definitely the older homes. Okay. Yeah. And some of them are renovated and some of them aren't. And we've also got the eight to 800 to million plus. Um, we're talking Livingston Park for those mainly, but pockets of Brooklyn Greens have them, some in Ranford Estate, some in Sanctuary Waters. Around the lake in Sanctuary Waters, we're still getting million and million one for those properties. Wow. I think it was four years ago, I sold the last block on the lake there in Sanctuary Waters for 840000 And they would have built a very nice two-story home. They have built a stunning home. Mm. Have they overcapitalized? Probably, but he's intending to keep it in the family, so it really doesn't matter, I well, guess. Well, that's the, always the answer if you've overcapitalized. Don't worry, I'm keeping it. <laughs> that's true. We do have a diverse Quite, yeah. buyer market. We have the first home buyers. We have the downsizers from Willerton, Bull Creek. The kids have left the school. They no longer need to be in the older homes. They come back to Kellingvale to get better value for money. See, I've never seen a suburb that has had so much price variation on the same property type being a four by two. Mm. What is the biggest determinant here? Is it the size of the house, the size of the block, or the estate? All three. Okay. Definitely all three. When people call me and they say, I'm moving to Caddy Vale, I want to be in one of the traditional estates, then you rattle them off. Livingston, Waratah, Ranford, Brooklyn Greens, Sanctuary Waters, and the Avenues is the only one that's in the centre. So the Avenues is in the centre. It's got the two beautiful lakes there and quite a few stunning homes around the lake. So that's where a lot of people that know Caddy Vale want to be. But you've got the young families that want the schools, then they're after Caledonia School Zone and the Ranford School Zone predominantly. You mentioned renovation or renovatable properties, a property that needs renovation. It's not something that many people would probably expect in a suburb like Canningvale, which to a lot of people, it still seems like a new suburb. Have you seen anyone come in and go, you know what, that's a good flip opportunity. It's obviously very run down. We're at the bottom of the market. No one's looking to buy anything that's run down, I can come in here, give it a lick of paint, new carpets, and then put it back on the market and and make it a a dollar. Have you seen any of that? Not really. The properties, the earliest property in Canningvale would have been 1990s, so early 90s. So they obviously are now aged. And so they need to be renovated. but And a lot of the owners are doing it themselves, revamping kitchen bathrooms and then selling them on. Well, it is an owner-occupied suburb. It is, most definitely, especially in the sought-after estates, most yeah. definitely. Yeah. Let's move into subdivision opportunities. We always have that, and it's a bit of a fast, cool uh, segment to have with this suburb, I think, but we yeah. might get some answers. Anything here where someone can come in, knock a house down, and put more houses on that block than currently was? We do have pockets of high density that have currently got a single dwelling on them. So that they are there. They're few and far between, of course, but they're there. A while back, 
the Canning City Council rezoned Livingston Estate. So there now are 20 in there. But Livingston Estate, historically, bigger blocks, but big homes set right in the centre of the lot. So it's not like you can walk in and do a battle axe block and build on the back. You, You just can't. And given that zoning, then you would expect the blocks will have to be over over the 800 square metre mark. And there are quite a few in there that are. But then again, the house sits right in the centre. So, yeah, so I guess nothing. Possibly an opportunity, but probably not financial and certainly no data to prove it. Or not in the short term. Yeah. Well, we'll I guess we'll have that conversation in 10 years and see what City of Canning think about some of those older estates that may need a bit of gentrification or may benefit from a uh, couple of apartment development zonings sitting along Ramford or somewhere mm. along there. Mm. All right, last question. It's the median house price question. What's the median house price in your suburb? Five thirty-five. Interesting. What are you going to do with $535,000 in your pocket today, Janie? You will get yourself a good-sized, meaning around the 200 square metres of living, four by two, possibly with a pool, probably not in one of the major estates. Is that where you'd put your money, in Canning Vale? I would definitely put my money in the sought-after estates. What are you getting there for $535,000 then? Probably the house without the pool. Still worth it. Not everyone needs a pool, right? No, and half people don't want one. Janie, thank you very much for coming in and chatting about Perth's biggest suburb. I'm thinking that the most people are going to be interested in this episode because we've had that many people ask about it, probably as this does a function of the fact that there are that many people living there. So thank you very much. I look forward to hearing the feedback on your information on the suburb. And I look forward to hearing more about this suburb in the future. And hopefully you can get another couple of suburbs under your belt as number one agent and we'll hear about them too. Thank you, Trent. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Perth Property Show. If you've only just joined the conversation, you can catch up by heading over to our website, perthpropertyshow.com.au, subscribing to the podcast or joining our Facebook page. Don't forget to tune in next Monday at 7am for more expert insights, local analysis and suburb spotlights. Happy hunting!